Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see everyone out today. Um, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 22. I'm going to be kind of launching from there, but I'm going to I'm going to be all over the place today. So if you've got your Bible with you, you may want to may want to keep that open and kind of make sure I don't mess up. One of the things that I'll say to couples when they come in, when they're just about on the verge of splitting up, I will hear something along the lines of, you know, I just don't love her anymore. That's one of the first things I'll hear. And my response is to say, then start. Well, but, but, but wait a minute, you don't understand. I, you, you don't hear what I'm, I'm saying, I don't love her anymore. No, I hear what you're saying. I'm telling you to start. What you're telling me is you don't have the feeling of love and you're expecting that feeling to generate the actions. What I'm telling you is to engage in the action, retrain your feelings so that your feelings come in line with what you do. Now, I do this all the time. I'll post to social media. I'll take my wife out on dates. I'll try to get away with her once or twice a year because what I'm doing is not just for her and it's certainly not for the people on social media to see. It's so that I remind myself of her value. And what I'm doing is I am training my brain to fight back against the negative influences of our culture. Because let me tell you something about your culture. Your culture wants you dissatisfied with your life. Because when you're dissatisfied, you buy the new truck. Or you change your brand of beer or whatever it is. That's what happens when, when Madison Avenue, when advertising companies, they, they look at how do I make you, if I can, if I can sell you this drink, if I can sell you this thing, then your life is going to be better and you're going to be sexier and just, you know, throw all the Axe cologne on and, and all these girls will just flock to you. It don't work, guys. Trust me, it's not that easy. But what the world wants to do is tell you, you know what, you'll find your satisfaction in relationships. You'll find your satisfaction in alcohol. You'll find your satisfaction in drugs. We're trying to sell you this stuff because the last thing the world wants is for you to be satisfied with your life. What God wants is for you to retrain your brain so that you walk in the peace and the joy that Jesus secured for you on the cross. So for the next several weeks, we're going to be doing a series on resetting our minds. And the reason we're going to be looking at this subject is, number one, because it's some of the most important teaching you'll ever hear. But secondly, it's also among the most neglected. And as you're going to hear in just a moment, Jesus himself said that this, this topic was so significant that it was part of the greatest of all the commands. And yet we talk about it in the church very, very little. I'm not sure why that is, but let's remedy that today. So look with me at Matthew 22, beginning in verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Let's pray together. Father God, help us to just not only absorb but to retain and to walk in what your word commands, what your word teaches, what your word instructs. Father God, we just yield ourselves to your spirit today. We invite you, Lord Jesus, to, to just take your throne in this place. Be king over all that we do. God, we want to glorify you and we want to reflect your glory to all that we see when we leave this place. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen and amen. I want you to think about what we just read because Jesus is saying of all the scriptures, this is the most important thing you can do. That's mind-blowing because he didn't say, hey, be a better person, read your Bible a lot, visit the sick, help the poor. Of every action you and I can possibly undertake as a human being, Jesus said the greatest is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. But I want you to be honest about how much you've considered what it means to love God with your mind. Loving him with my heart, I think I understand. The Hebrew word is labab, and that, that word means to speak to my identity. It's the concept of, of the inner person. The heart is the control tower. Think of an, air, an airport without a control tower. Absolute chaos. The heart is, is the, the control tower, the seat of my will and my intentions. Uh, loving him with my soul speaks to my existence. The Hebrew word there is nefesh, and it means the energy of your being. It means to give him your abilities, your time, and your strength. So, so love the Lord with all your heart, your inner person, with your abilities, your time, and your strength, Jesus is saying. But what does it mean to love God with my mind? Now, the word mind, I don't know if you know this, occurs 53 times in the New Testament alone. When Jesus rebuked Peter, it was because of what was in his mind. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not what have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. When demons were cast out in Mark 5.15, it says, when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed in his right mind and they were afraid the mind of that in the new mind of that individual served as the evidence of the delivering power of God and when the disciples were sent off as evangelists in Luke 21 it was the mind that Jesus said needed to be dealt with Luke 21 14 make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourself for I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or to contradict. But yet when we begin to deal with the subject, we run the risk of either being seen as cultish or unspiritual. Well, why is that? Well, first, because there are those who think that when you talk about God changing your thinking, that you're brainwashing people. Now, I've talked with some of you. Some of you need a good brainwashing. <laughs> You need to be cleansed. All right, got another amen there. <laughs> some nervous laughter too, but that's okay. Some of us need to have our brains washed, but that's not what Jesus meant. Then there are those in church who only want to deal with, I, I love these people, they only want to deal with spiritual matters, right? Uh, the, I, I once had it said to me, you know what, Pastor, what goes on in the mind isn't important. It's what you do, it's your actions that matter. The problem is, the Bible says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. What goes on in your mind will be reflected in the actions that you engage in me. And Jesus said, the greatest of all the commands of God has to do with what we do with our minds. Love the Lord with all your, your inner being, love the Lord with your actions, and love the Lord with your mind. Of all the scriptures, this is the most important thing you can do. So how do we do that? How do we engage in that? I'm not going to give you a lot of setup, but what I do want to do is give you four ways in which our minds can actively love God. And the first is by having a made-up mind. 
That means something is consecrated. It is settled in areas of eternal significance. Things must be settled or they are fruitless and vulnerable. One of the things that I have learned from 20 plus years in the ministry is that if you are not settled that this is your assignment, you will always envy what somebody else has. I've seen ministers that just get eaten up because they're always concerned with what somebody else has, the numbers somebody else is running, the salary somebody else is making. And I always want to say, are you sure that you're walking in the assignment of God? Well, they'll always say, well, yeah, I'm sure. Well, then why are you worried? Why are you concerned? You know why I learned that? My marriage. My marriage, because once I, I took my bride to be my wife, that is settled. That is my assignment from God. My son-in-law, before he was my son-in-law, we, we were at a cookout. And we were at a friend's house, and he, was, he had bought a fixer. We were kind of in an area of, of Connecticut that was, that was expensive, and so he had bought a fixer, and he was working on it. And my friend's name was Dean. And so I'm talking with my son-in-law, and his in-laws were having concerns about him getting married. They wanted him to finish college and then finish grad school. And, and look, I have four daughters, and I always told them, you can date after you're done with medical school. But, but so, so I get it as a parent. I understand it as a parent. But what I was trying to tell him is, look, where you are and how much money you have and how much education you have is not going to determine whether your marriage is solid. It's not. And I grew up in a very educated home with tons of divorces. How much money you make, your position, all that stuff is not going to determine the, the stability of your marriage relationship. And I said, let me ask you a question. I said, if, if our friend Dean knew he was about to uh, inherit a couple of million dollars, how much money and time do you think he'd put into this house? Probably very little. He just ride it out till he got his inheritance, sell the house, and get the house he really wanted. I said, but what if he knew that this was the only house he was ever going to live in the rest of his life? Well, then you'd make it exactly like you wanted. You'd fix it up as just the way you want it to be. And I said, that's exactly true with your marriage. If you always are being persuaded that there's something better out there, then you'll always be looking elsewhere. If you're convinced this is my assignment... You will work to make it the best it can be. And that's one example of how we train our minds to be made up about something. What Jesus is saying is bring that into the realm of the spiritual. Because if you have two simultaneously coexisting ways of thinking in your mind, the tangible outward result will be spiritual instability. That's what James says. A double-minded man is what unstable in all his ways. And what that means is you can have all these kind of lofty intentions. And you know what? Next time I see that kid getting picked on, I'm going to say something. Next time I hear them telling these dirty jokes, I'm going to walk away. And then it happens and you don't do anything because you've got conflicted. What do you think happens if you take a computer and try to load up two conflicting operating systems on the same hard drive? It's going to crash. And that's what James is saying with your brain. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And so what that means is we have to want our minds to be singularly focused on the will of God. Having a made-up mind actually means that my mind will be focused on what Jesus' mind would be focused on if Jesus were living my life. Let me say that again. Having a made-up mind means that my mind will be focused on what Jesus would be focused If Jesus was living this life, how would Jesus think? How would Jesus operate. The problem is that if we don't do these things, we're going to find ourselves 
in a place where spiritually we hit a dead end and we fail to be able to grow. Let me share with you a few scriptures here. In Luke 24, Jesus is speaking and he says, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Then he what? Opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. See, they've been walking with him for three years. He taught them all these things. They didn't grasp it. And you know the reason they didn't grasp it? Because they kept trying to make what Jesus said fit into what they wanted it to mean. When Jesus said, I'm going to die. Okay, so that's like a metaphor, right? Like I'm going to die to my, all that kind of. And then when Jesus said, I'm going to rise again. Oh, so that's kind of like a boxer, right? And he's down and he gets himself back. No, it was literal. I'm literally going to be nailed to the cross. And so here he is after the cross. And he says, this is what I said when I was with you, that everything that is written about me in the, in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms would be fulfilled. And it says, so he opened their minds so they could understand the scripture. Here's another one. Paul writes this and he says in uh, 1 Corinthians 2.14, you got to switch that back, brother, so I can, thank you. 1 Corinthians 2.14. Make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. I'm, I'm sorry, this is Luke 21, 14. Make up your mind how, not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourself. I will give you words and wisdom. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 14, the man without the spirit does not accept the things. So see what Jesus is saying in Luke 21, I'll give you these things. But he says, if you don't have the mind of Christ, if you don't have that made up mind, if you are not being led by the Spirit of God, you cannot accept the things that come from the Spirit. And so here we see Paul teaching in Romans chapter 8, and he says this, the mind of the sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. Now, a lot of times we we'll look at this and we'll think that he's talking about the difference between lost people and saved people. Paul's writing to the church. Paul's writing to the church. And he says, the mind of the sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the spirit of is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law because it cannot do so. It can't do so. So the first thing I have to do is to make up my mind that I want to have a made up mind. I want to be committed. I want to be consecrated. I want to be settled in things of eternal significance because when I am in that place, my mind is now open to a greater storehouse of wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. See, that's why the world will tell you, well, you're closed-minded. The, the, the funny thing is, is being closed-minded is about being the ultimate ruler over what goes into your mind. And it is ironically the closed-minded who will tell Christians that they're being closed-minded. When you have the mind of Christ, you are open up to the things of the spirit. You are opened up to that greater storehouse of wisdom and knowledge that was not available to you when you didn't know Christ. The second truth that we need to engage in is having unity of mind. Within the church, this is a sign to the world that the power of God is within us. Jesus prayed, if you go back and you look at John 15 through 17, Jesus is praying for the church and he's, he's asking, he's going right before he's going to the cross. He asked the Father that we might be as unified as he is with the Father. Now that's mind-blowing. I can't even comprehend what that would look like. But that's the prayer of Jesus. That they may be unified. He said, they will know you are my disciples 
by your love one for another. And so if I don't have that ability to get unified, see, that's why sometimes I agree. Somebody will come up and say, hey, pastor, I'm leaving the church. And I, I, I joke around. I say, you know, some people, they leave the church and you have a, a goodbye party for them. And then some people leave and you have two because the first one felt so good. I got more nervous laughter. I've never actually had two goodbye parties. I'm just, just messing with you. But sometimes you have people that just refuse to get in alignment with what God is doing in his church. And it is all about them and it is all about what they want to do and it is all about how they think they should be and they always have an opinion but they will never look at you and say, look, I have prayed and I have fasted and God has spoken to me that this is the way we're supposed to go. I've never heard that in more than 20 years of ministry. I've never had somebody come to me and say, you know, pastor, I think we're going the wrong direction. I say, why? Because I have spent a considerable amount of time. I've fasted for days. I've gotten into his word. I've prayed. I've never had that happen. It's always, well, this is what I think. This is what I feel. This is my perception of how things should be. And I think of Paul and Barnabas because sometimes you just can't, can't come to agreement. Barnabas was all about relationships. Paul was all about, let's get it done. Right? That's, Paul's like, let's plant some churches, whatever it takes. I don't care if I get beaten. I don't care if I get thrown in jail. So they go out together and they start preaching and they bring a young guy with them named John Mark. Wrote the Gospel of Mark. And right in the middle of this journey, Mark says, you know what? I'm out. Man, I can't handle this. I'm gone. This is too much. He leaves. So now they're getting ready for a new missionary journey. And Barnabas says, I think we should bring John Mark. And Paul's like, no. See, Barnabas is all about, let's build him up. Yeah, I know he blew it, but let's build him up. Let's bring it back. Let's and, and Paul's like, look, I'm all about the people that are lost, that deserve the kind of ministry we should give them. Who's right? Who's right? You know, the Bible never says Barnabas was really wrong and Paul was. It doesn't say anything like that. We don't know. It's just the way that they were wired. But what I do know is that there is an overarching vision that God gives to the church. Sometimes people say something like, well, pastor, there's only one church. Well, okay, kind of, sort of. But that's not what the Bible teaches. I get what you're saying. There's one universal church. I get it. I agree with you. But go to the book of Revelation to the church in Thyatira, to the church in Philadelphia, to the church in Pergamum. There's seven different churches. Every one of them has different situations going on. Jesus addresses them differently. Sometimes he commends, sometimes he rebukes, but he's always got a mission for each local church because God has raised up those local churches to fulfill a specific part of his plan. And it's our responsibility as a local body of believers to come together in unity, in prayer, and say, God, show us what it is that you want us to do? How can we reflect you in Idaho Falls? How can we display to the lost world around us that Jesus, you are in our midst? Look at Acts 4, verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and what? Mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. See, they got to the place where they were outward focused and they were putting the mission of Jesus Christ before their own needs and before their own desires. And that's what it looks like when a church has unity of mind. I want you to think about who you see, who you know in the church that is the most vision focused, most committed person in the church. Now imagine a church filled with that desire to go after God's heart and will. You've just described the early church. 
They were one. They were unified in heart and mind. They weren't looking at their possessions as security blankets for their future. They were looking at everything they had, all their abilities, their time, their talent, their treasure, as things that God had given them to be able to reach the lost world around them. They had unity of mind around the purpose of God. The third is the purified mind. This is, um, this is key because the flesh is what it is. The f- this flesh and blood, Scripture says, shall not inherit the kingdom of God. We're going to be given a new body. The Spirit of God that God gives to you when you are born again is perfect. It will always draw you to God. The mind is the battlefield. And so having a purified mind is the responsibility of the believer. You know, I, I, hear, I heard it said around here, it said, Pastor, you, you'll, you'll come to learn there's two seasons here in this part of the country. There's winter and then there's guest season, visitor season. I said, okay, I'm, I'm used to that in, in Florida. There's two seasons. There was summer and visitor season, right? So when the weather turns nice, everybody wants to, everybody wants to go down there. Now, we have an extra uh, bedroom, and when we moved in, it's downstairs, it's in the basement, um, and we put a lot of our stuff in, in the rest of the basement, but we also put a lot of our stuff in that guest room. Knowing, you know what, when the weather warms up and we start getting visitors, we're going to have to clear that room out. You know what we won't do? We won't throw a mattress down and just kind of push all the stuff to the side, right? I mean, imagine you have a guest come in, you know, family come in, and, and you say, oh, here, we got a guest room for you. Oh, hold on, let me just push all this stuff off the mat. You don't do that. You clean out the room that you want them to occupy. And that's what it means to have a purified mind. If I want the mind of Christ, if I want the thoughts and intentions, if I want the purpose of God dictating the direction of my life, then I've got to get rid of everything that's in there that would hinder the work of God. Look at Romans 12 too. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then... After that, in other words, that has to happen first. And that's why a lot of Christians are kind of stumbling around blindly and they're kind of being led by emotions. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Ephesians 4 says this, Be made new in the attitude of your minds. See, that's something that's radical because what we see now is a world with just a a cynical and dark and depressing attitude. We have an attitude that's cynical. We have an attitude that's untrustworthy or, or untrusting. And so Ephesians says, be made new in the attitude of your mind. Think about it this way. How many years were you separated from God? That's at least as long as your mind was trained to think as it does. And for some of us, even after we came to Christ, we still retained those old way of thinking. Try and experiment. I don't know how you, how, when you get in the shower, maybe some of you wash your face before you wash your hair, you wash your hair before you wash your face. Do the opposite. See how weird that is, right? I mean, you're just like, and that's one little habit. Man, I've seen couples fight over which way the glasses are supposed to be in the cupboard. They're supposed to be down. No, they're supposed to, supposed to be. There's no supposed to be. That's just the way your mom and daddy did it. And her mom and daddy did it, did it differently. And so now you come together and, hun, the glasses are upside down. Well, that's the way they're supposed to be. No, they're not. They're supposed to be right side up. No, nope, they're supposed to be a... 
it's just the attitude and the thoughts and the habits of your brain that tell you those things. And if it takes you maybe a week to change that one simple habit so it's no longer weird, what makes you think that just because you accepted Jesus that your mind was automatically going to get in line with your spirit? And so that's why the Bible says that we have to be transformed in the renewing of our minds. Romans 1, 28. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. A thing will become more of what it already is. By the way, he's the one who wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. A thing will become more of what it already is because momentum determines direction. Right? So, so you're trying to push a car uphill. It's going to take a lot of energy to do that. If you get the car going and maybe you're on a flat straightaway, once there is momentum, that will determine the direction the vehicle goes. What was it that determined your taste in entertainment? God, after you were saved, or your flesh before it? What was it that determined how you spend your time? God, after you were saved, or your flesh before it? Who was it that taught you how to love others? God, after you were saved, or your flesh before it? Who taught you how you see relationships, dating, giving, faithfulness, on and on and on. That's why the enemy invests so much time trying to make us think on things that interfere with a consecrated or purified mind. The enemy wants us thinking depressing thoughts. The enemy wants us thinking cynical thoughts. The enemy wants us thinking negative thoughts. Because the longer we do that, the more it trains the pathways in our brain to keep thinking along that way. I ask people this all the time. What is thicker? The ball of your foot or the skin under your arm? It's the ball of your foot. Why? Well, because I use it all the time. The way you use your brain will, will determine how you, you act, how you think moving forward because you're training your brain to think that way. That worry, that lust, that temptation by itself isn't what makes it dangerous. What makes it dangerous is where it leads if it's allowed to go unchecked. That while your mind is occupied with those things, it can't focus on the things that prepare you for eternity. I saw a story this week, New York Post, about a guy 35 years old. He says, I've been using porn since I was a teenager. I can't have a relationship with a woman because it destroyed the way I view relationships. Duh. Church has been trying to tell you that for 25 years. The world is finally catching up and saying, oh, I guess this is bad. This is, this is probably dangerous. This is probably harmful. God's been trying to tell us that for thousands of years in his word. And that's why we need to recognize that we need to have a Christ-like mind. We need to have a Christ-like mind. Understand something. What's broken cannot generate what is perfect. What's broken cannot generate what's perfect. The choices that I have are a perfected mind designed and shaped by a perfect God or a depraved mind constructed by myself. You and I are fallen human beings. It's arrogant to say, I will construct a way of thinking that will cause me to reflect a holy God in a perfect eternity. I can't do that. You can't do that. We need to have the mind of Christ. Think about this. If you were Satan and you wanted to hinder somebody's preparation for eternity, what would be the best way to do it? Get them to sin and stumble for a moment or even a season? 
or to get their minds habitually focused on the malfunctioning things of this earth as their regular habit. There are Christians that actually live more like practicing Satanists. You know what I find interesting? The two great movements of Satanism, you had Anton LaVey and the Satanic Church and the Satanic Bible that came out. You have now the Satanic Temple, and this is the, the group that you read about in all the newspapers that are having events and, and, and engaging in lawsuits. Do you know that neither of them believe in Satan? Neither. They both say in their manifesto that they do not believe in God. They do not believe in Satan. They do not encourage the worship of Satan. Let me tell you something. Satan's greatest trick is convincing us he doesn't exist. The last thing he wants is somebody actually worshiping him and learning how to turn worship outward because that might get redirected to God. And oftentimes I find it's easier to, to witness to somebody who's into witchcraft and Satanism than good people who grew up in church. Because their mind is already outward. And that good person, do you know what the number one tenet of Satanism is? It's not worship the devil. It's indulge yourself. It's all about self-indulgence. You are the one that, that should be the focus of your attention. And that's why people from other religions or even cults and witchcraft are often easier. They're closer to the kingdom of God because at least they're focused outward. The devil comes against Christians and what he tries to do is to get our focus completely on ourselves. And think about every trend that you've seen go through the church in the last 20 years. Man, we've had the purpose-driven church. We've had the prayer of Jabez. We've had the, the, the promise keepers. On and on and on. Have you ever gone into a Christian bookstore and said, Hey, I want the books on the trend of suffering. I want to see the, the trend of sacrifice. Where are the books on that? That's almost impossible to find. You write a book that's about your worship, your marriage... Your life, blessing you, your, everything's about you, and we eat it up. But man, you put out a book on how to suffer for Christ. I, I, I mentioned in the earlier service, the second most published book behind the Bible is a book called In His Steps. It was over 100 years ago it was written, and it's where, if you were around back then, the WWJD movement back in the 1990s, this, this didn't come out 25, 30 years ago. That was in the book In His Steps. And it's about a preacher in, oh, it's about 100 years ago, and it's in England, and they're, um, they're, they're one of the kind of the prominent churches, and they're a desirable pulpit, and so everybody's pretty and nice and smells good and everything. And one day, a guy comes into the church, and he's destitute, right? You're right in the middle of the Industrial Revolution. He's sick. His, he doesn't know how he's going to care for his family. And he comes into the church and he begins to speak to the ministry and he collapses in weakness. And the minister takes him home and he dies. The guy dies. And the minister is so shaken by this experience, he comes to the church. He says, we're going to have a meeting after service. And anybody who wants to be part of this meeting, I, I, I want to encourage you to be there. And he says, I want to challenge you for the next year to do nothing without asking the question, what would Jesus do? He's trying to train them to think with a Christ-like mind. And the things that happen are radically transformational. The people in the church are completely moved. Complete. Now, some of them leave the church. Some of them have some bad stuff happen to them. And, and, but most of them, 
move into another realm. It's a very realistic type of book, and, and he never secured copyright uh, for the, never secured a copyright for the book, so it became the most published book. It's called In His Steps by Charles Sheldon. Let me tell you something. God isn't just looking for you to be obedient or for you to give or for you to get, share you know, your time, your abilities. God doesn't want you reluctantly choosing to do the right thing simply because you know you ought to. He wants you to do and, th- and act in the ways that you should out of a consecrated, outward-focused, Christ-like mind. That we should desire to do what Jesus did and not simply engage in those activities. The loss of desire... I want you to think back to when you first got saved. Man, you were, you were just... You wanted to do what God wanted you to do for, with your life. You would get in spiritual conversations easy. The loss of desire for the things of God is usually the first symptom of a spiritual problem that will not get better by being ignored. Everything that you and I should do should flow from a Christ-like, outward-centered mind. So with the amount of scriptures I've quoted, and there are many, many more that deal with this, it's pretty obvious that the mind is a vital dynamic of our salvation. So how can I give myself a spiritual examination to see where I'm supposed to be? Here's the problem. If you've walked with Jesus any length of time, you know that it is oftentimes the least spiritual people that think they're the most spiritual. Man, they just, they will tell you everything that you ought to do. They have an opinion about everything. Everybody over here is wrong. If you're not doing it my way, but you look at their life. I had a brother like this, man. He was an atheist. He was, and he was always trying to tell me how I should live. And I finally said, why would I want to be like you? It never entered into his brain. He was so in love with himself and his opinion. It never, I don't want to be like you, man. You have no blessing. You have no peace. You don't have the things that I'm pursuing. People oftentimes will come into the church that are like that and they've got an opinion about everything. But man, they, they never touch heaven. They never know how to worship their way into the throne room of God. They, they, they never instruct anybody in any meaningful transformational way. They're just pure 100% Pharisees. And I've seen this all the time. And if you ask them, if you'd ask the Pharisees who the most spiritual people that they knew, well, it's us, of course. And Jesus is saying, there's thieves and prostitutes that are closer to the kingdom of God than you are. You don't even realize how far you are away. And so what it tells me is that I can't rely on my own assessment of myself to determine if where that I am where I'm supposed to be. So Paul gives us a great one in Philippians 2.5. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's the mind of Christ. If you want to evaluate yourself, ask yourself a very simple question. How much time do I spend thinking on me And how much time do I spend thinking on the people that need Jesus? How much time do I spend thinking on the things that I want and would make my life better? And how much time do I spend thinking, because that's the way Jesus thought, how can I bless others? See, that passage begins this way. If you go back a little bit earlier in Philippians 2, Paul asks this question. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, 
Man, that's pretty strong. If you any, if you had any encouragement, if you have any comfort of his love. See, these things are not true for people in hell. There's no encouragement there. There's no comfort there. He says, if you have any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. That doesn't mean you walk around thinking that everybody is better than you. That's not what that means at all. He's not saying that. It means that you walk around, and I've known people like, everybody's better than me. Everybody has more than me. Everybody's more blessed than me. That is not what Paul is encouraging. We should not be walking around like that. What he's saying is that I walk around prioritizing the people around me over myself. That's the mind of Christ. He had all the glory of heaven before him, but considered our predicament of greater importance. The angels bowed before him. He sat on the throne. He was divine. Everything that we see, everything that was created, was created by him. And that's why it says that he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. And that word doesn't mean taken hold of. It means to be clung to, right? Even though he was in very nature God, past tense, did not consider that something to be clung to. Released it. Made himself nothing. Took on the form of a servant. The Greek word there is doulos. It means slave. He took on the lowest possible form because you needed him to. You needed him to come to this earth. It was one thing for God to send instructions through his prophets. It was another to walk on this earth in the form of his son and show us what that righteous life looked like. It's one thing to declare commands. It's another thing to give us of his spirit so that we can actually have the power to obey and fulfill those commands. But it begins by having the mind of Christ to where I desire these things. Where I want more than just to do my God thing and check off the box and go to church. That's not what he's calling us to. That's not what unity looks like. It means to move into a completely different level of operation where I am tapped in to the thoughts and mind. That's why Jesus said in that earlier passage, when you come before people that are opposing you, and you will, and you come before people who want to persecute you, and you will, don't worry about what you're going to say. Don't worry about what you're going to say. That's our natural inclination, right? You ever, you ever have like a meeting with somebody or you know it's going to come up the next day and you know there's going to be conflict and man, your mind is on that tape loop over and over and over what you're going to say. Man, I'm going to say this. And then you get there and you're like, and you, don't, you can't say anything that you thought about and you spent like 10 hours thinking of exactly, I'm going to tell this person, I'm going to give them a piece of my mind, right? And then you get there and not, like nothing comes out. Jesus says, just let it go. Tap in to the thinking that God will give you by his spirit and I will give you words that they, they, they will not be able to answer. It will confound them. And when you look at the early church, what frustrated the opponents of the early church was not that they had you know, this great art, we just can't persuade you. It's that they would talk about Jesus and they had no way to refute them. And that just really got them mad. I had a friend say this to me. He said, you know what? Grace is never a neutral force. It will either draw people, it's like a magnet, it will either draw people or it will repel them. 
And that's what we see over and over in the scriptures. So I want to ask you this as we get ready to wind down, as we go to worship. Are you aware of a spiritual something in your brain? Think of it like a, like a spiritual tumor that needs to be removed. An attitude, unforgiveness, temptation, habit, sin in your life, a way of thinking, maybe just plain old self-centeredness that is trying to coexist with the mind of Christ. Eventually what happens, James says, is it brings spiritual collapse. A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Maybe you have a nagging awareness that there is something about the way you think and the things that your thought life and the things you reflect on. For some, it's very obvious. Say, people come up, Pastor, I have a problem with lust or, or I have a problem with bitterness or I had, you know, I had, I did prison ministry and I had somebody that was involved in, in, a, in, a, in a racist organization and they just hated people that were different than them. And that kind of stuff is really obvious for most of us. It's just this lingering understanding that there is something about my thinking, my negativity, my criticality, my bitterness, my unforgiveness that is displeasing to God. But my mind keeps trying to justify when I do it, even when as I continue to do it, I sense the displeasure of Jesus and I have a lack of peace in my life. And it is because both that mind and the mind of Jesus cannot exist inside the same skull. One of them is going to establish dominance. So that's why we talk about cancer and, and the danger of it, because it doesn't just stay where it is. If it's a malignant tumor, it will spread and spread and spread until it establishes dominance over that area of the body. And that's what Scripture is warning us about, that when we recognize that part of our thinking that is contrary to the mind of Christ, we have to make a decision to get it out because one is going to develop and increase and take over. And that's what the power of God is here for. If you're aware that that thing, whatever it is, ought not to be there, what I want to do in just a moment as this praise team ministers is open up this altar for its disposal. That you can bow before God and say, God, I confess I've been bitter. I've been unforgiving. I've been nasty. I've been selfish. I, I, I've, I've been greedy. Whatever it is that's going on in my mind, and I've been justifying it, but God, today, I lay it down before you. Let's stand together, if you will, and let's come into one mind and come into agreement here. I believe what the Lord would ask is that you not only recognize what needs to be excised, but that also whatever it is that you do excise get left, gets left at the altar. Father, in the name of Jesus, your spirit doesn't speak, but that you want us to respond. You don't just speak, Lord, so that we'll agree with you. You speak so that we can walk in agreement with you. You're not just looking for our decisions and our thought process to be affected. You want our decisions and our thought process to be affected so that our lives can display a higher call, a higher reality, a greater depth of intimacy with Jesus. And so, Father, I'm praying right now for every person in this place who's been clinging to bitterness, selfishness, anger, whatever it is, Lord, that, that, that we often try to just justify. We always point back to why it makes sense that we think this way, but at the end of the day, 
it can no longer coexist with the mind of Christ. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord God, that your spirit would just move with absolute clarity. Draw us before you and let us lay before you at this altar anything and everything that is in our minds that is not in the mind of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.